Hello, you are listening to the London Council's Let's Talk About podcast. My name is Alex Sewell, I'm Special Projects Lead in the Housing and Planning Team at London Council. Today's podcast is being recorded to mark the centenary of the Housing and Town Planning Act, better known as the Addison Act after the Health Minister Christopher Addison who guided the Act through Parliament. The Act became legislation in July 1919 and is widely recognised as marking the birth of council housing in England and Wales as we know it today. The podcast will look at the history of the impact of council housing in London, the challenges currently faced by boroughs, and what the future holds for council housing. And we have with us a group of esteemed guests who will introduce themselves now. Hi, I'm Ellie Shepherd, the Strategic Lead for Housing and Planning, also at London Councils. Hi, I'm Mark Bajan, I'm the Chair of the London Housing Directors Group, and I work for Tower Hamlets Council. And I'm Tony Travers from the London School of Economics with a long uh, interest in the development of London and its government. Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about today is how housing was provided prior to the, uh, to the Addison Act. Well, I mean, I suppose it's probably fair to say that a lot of housing was provided, quote unquote, by slums. <laughs> You know, I think it's important to talk about the, the, the context of that if you think, you know, areas like Tower Hamlets or even Covent Garden, the way that they, they, they used to be, like somewhere like Seven Dials um, in, in the 19th century. Um, and that was the only housing that was affordable to people um, at that time. Yeah, so most people were private renting uh, yeah. from a, a landlord who owned vast numbers of properties that is very different from the private renter sector that we're left with today. And you can get a a sense of how dismal some uh, areas of even inner and central London Mm. were at the time by the Booth poverty maps, these famous Mm. maps produced uh, by literally walking the streets, uh, easily findable online, and wherever they are marked in black or dark red, uh, dark blue, sorry, uh, these are areas of dismal conditions of a kind that, you know, whatever the worst housing we know today, impossible to imagine by today's standards. They really were, as you say, early slums. Yeah, really high concentrations of uh, population as well. And yeah. yeah, and I think that's an interesting point because London has had numerous periods of you know huge growth where there's been a lot of work in the capital and the people have come in, but obviously a lot of that work has been very low paid, going back and back and, and back. So there's, there's a question about how London provides its housing and the answer prior to the Addison Act and other sort of social movements at a similar time was not a great answer. <laughs> no, significantly through overcrowding and an absolutely appalling lack of uh, proper sanitation and other facilities with inside housing, which, by the way, you know, the Greater London Council was still producing statistics about homes without inside facilities, as they coyly put it, till the 1980s. And then there's also the housing association movement as well, because there's a lot of that in East London, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and sort of pri- but a lot of that at that point was privately charitable and sort of private philanthropic individuals mm-hmm. taking it upon themselves to, to, to build housing as opposed to that being a municipal function. Yes, Peabody were yes. up there, and Guinness, yeah. interestingly, uh, and others were, yes, there were, there was mm. sort of... Uh, and then the church, almshouses and all of that, bits of what would today be considered um, housing association property. So, yes, philanthropic, better housing. It was better. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Some of them are really, sort of, really nice estates, aren't they, mm. that you actually mm. find today around, particularly around these parts of London. So, mm. we're, we're based in Southwark. Lots of examples around this way of um, mm-hmm. particularly nice 
from the state development. So. This is Guinness housing near this building, mm. and the uh, Peabody building. So though they look a bit sort of tenement like, they're clearly robust and are mm. still, in, as far as I can see, liked mm. by the people who live in them. Definitely. Yeah. It's quite interesting because obviously we talk about the Addison Act as the birth of council housing in the in, well in England and Wales. But obviously there is ex examples prior to that of development in London, particularly with the London County Council, um, doing a lot of development from sort of the late 1800s through to, you know, before the First World War, um, also sort of branching out into that kind of, um, yeah, sort of trying to improve conditions for people, um, as like the working class communities in, across London. Well, there's no doubt that the, the London County Council, which started life in 1889, <laughs> big step forward on its predecessor, the Metropolitan Board of Works, which was a sort of ramshackle joint committee of all the authorities in London. It too had begun to stray into how to alleviate the worst of these housing conditions. But the, the LCC actually went about building what today would be seen as council housing, mm. um, actual estates, uh, famously the one in Tower Hamlet's. The boundary yeah. estate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a grade two listed estate. It's um, very, very well loved, and it's and it's stood the test of time. So um, something Tower Council is very proud of. In fact, there's a. I would think, though, I don't know if I'm right about this. Somebody who listens to the podcast will write in telling <laughs> me I was wrong. Um, that the um, Millbank estate, which I think is also LCC, was a slightly later, mm. looks like a first cousin of the Boundary estate, very similar kind of layout and same red brick buildings, mm. um, and equally still functioning to this day. Yeah, I think they were built really close to each other in terms of the time. That, so. um, but it's interesting yeah. how aspirational those properties are and how you know well loved compared to a lot of later council house building, which is sort of, you know, not not so mm. close in people's hearts. Yeah. yeah. I think it's true. Well, they were built yeah. out of recognisable materials, to mm. with brick, with gabled roofs, mm. lots of space compared with the dire slums that people had had to put up with before, and with sort of stone corridors, mm. uh, which meant they were no longer a fire trap, so they, you know, they ticked about six boxes at once. Mm. It's, it is interesting to me how much of this was about public health at a very basic level and sanitation and almost the birth of, you know, that very esteemed local authority profession of environmental health officers um, as well, um, you know, because a lot of that was about you, you create more space for people, you create better sanitation and suddenly you get rid of cholera <laughs> and such things which are you know less of an issue now I hope in London. But it is true I mean you're reading um, accounts by Victorian philanthropists or even books written about the London County mm. Council about the conditions people lived in they are shocking to the point of almost being impossible to believe how dire the conditions were you know people living sharing beds holes in the side end of the corner of the room where effluent, put it delicately, would pour through. Um, you know, it's amazing life expectancy. It was as long as it was, actually, yeah. in what was the biggest city and one of the richest cities in the world. Mm. Yeah. Cool. It was a time of great population growth as well, obviously. Mm. Yeah. And obviously that would have been, as we've mentioned, that would have been such a driving force behind the LCC delivering um, the estate regeneration of you know, projects they delivered, I think. I read that they delivered over 40 projects before we even get to the Addison Act, sort of, um, sort of encouraging that from a state-wide level. So, 
He's creating a context for it, potentially. <laughs> yes, because the LCC was kind of radical. Uh, it had a big tax base, and um, it had first liberals, so they weren't quite called liberals, and then Labour politicians. Mm. Um, they were called coyly called progressives on the centre-left <laughs> and moderates for the Conservatives, sort of disguise. Uh, but anyway, um, the LCC soon went into what would today be seen as bigger state activism. I don't think they thought of it like that. But there was a lot of worry on, among Conservative politicians that this was all going to run away with the, with the taxpayers' cash. And to some level, it did. But in doing so, it was able to make radical changes, not only to housing, but also the LCC built hospitals, mm. and it built bridges, and uh, roads, and it was, in many ways, uh, you know, the single most powerful municipality London ever had. Mm. Why, of course, Conservative politicians in particular became afraid of it as it became ever more Labour-controlled in the <laughs> 1930s, 40s, 50s and 60s. But that's another story for yeah. another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should probably have that podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds really engaging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we get to 1919, the Alton Act comes in. Yeah. Um, how has that changed the picture then? So um, what impact does that have on council housing in London in terms of like the borough's responsibilities for this? How does that, and what approach do councils take to sort of developing new homes? I also think it's just interesting to set the, the First World War context yeah. a little bit as well and the, um, the veterans coming back with, you know, health problems and with a sense of, you know, kind of this huge loss and horror that has, that has happened and wanting to provide something better because everybody talks about homes for heroes so you know despite all the other things we've just been talking about about public health about population growth yeah. about the need for improved housing the, the sort of immediate context was 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 the first world war and that seemed to galvanize people to take more state control and responsibility for housing i think this is 100 percent right i mean i'm what I'm about to say now will sound as if I'm in favour of war, which I'm not going to sit down. But there's no doubt, it's a good disclaimer. The First World War, if you take the Second World War and the First yeah. World War, massive steps forward yeah. in terms of you know, women's place in yes. the labour force. Yeah. Just part that for another, another, another uh, podcast. But just to add to this point, the, the fact is that army recruiters in the First World War were shocked by the... Um, poverty, the malnutrition, and so on, that they saw amongst young people who'd signed up in 1914 mm. and 1915. That message got through, that, that, that literally the army, to its credit, noticed there was a social problem, and that then fed back into politics. Mm. So it's, it's a very important point. Mm. Yeah. But it did, it did sort of create the idea of... The, the state taking responsibility Absolutely. for house building mm, yeah. in a way that it hadn't before, um, which which is quite um, you know obviously an interesting an interesting moment. Um, and it obviously predates all the other welfare state yes. changes that came you know twenty years later after the Second World uh, War. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. And the LCC, I mean, it is, I say it's worth stressing what a leader the LCC was mm. and London was because the LCC was beginning to create. The beginnings of what we today see as the welfare state, and in fairness, other other big cities were doing something similar: Birmingham and Nottingham and Manchester and so on. But the LCC was a leader, and separately, you know, London Transport was being created as well. So this mm. was an enormous time of uh, progress in London, 
as it went from being you know a big overcrowded city into a proper modern metropolis mm. yeah and having having to almost consider if they've done all that growth and how do you then manage yeah, manage, the manage that it, yeah. a bit a little yeah. bit better but we did have quite a lot of numbers kind of coming out in terms of new council homes it's ended up being was it fifteen thousand a year yeah in the interwar period yeah and then yeah as we get into like the 1960s and 70s we start seeing about twenty seven thousand mm -hmm. yeah. council homes a year being built by boroughs yeah. What really interests me, and I don't know whether this is in the annals somewhere, but what we're going through now in terms of recruiting architects and building surveyors and all kinds of specialist project management staff to, to run these development programmes that haven't been happening in the last 25 years, you know, how was all that gearing up and capacity building done back in the early 1920s? It'd be really interesting to just find out if that, if that exists somewhere. But presumably there was a whole training programme for new people coming into local authority house building. Well, the, Lon the London County Council had, famously in its later days, but had, quite early on, architects departments, mm. all sorts of expertise, which, of course, the smaller metropolitan boroughs, of which there were 28, plus mm. the City of oh, London... Gosh, there, there were so many. Yes, there was, there was it was all lot, different, yeah. There was a lot of government. And actually, um, some responsibilities were with the hands in the hands of those metropolitan uh, boroughs as well. So Tower Hamlets mm. consisted of three or four so yeah. these smaller municipalities. Mm. Um, and, in fact, famously, George Lansbury, you know, who went on to be Labour leader, was mm. leader of one... For another day, um, so the you know the, the the extent to which there were different municipal actors and outside the London boundary, which was municipalising, you got Croydon mm. Corporation, East and West Ham, you know, beginning to take advantage of these policies, this the Addison Act provisions. But famously, of course, the LCC itself built the massive um, Beckentree Estate. Mm. In today, well, today in Dagenham, Barking and Dagenham, which was the biggest thing of its kind that had ever been built in the world, mm. the biggest council estate in the world. I do find it's a really interesting period of London's growth actually, because you have obviously the LCC estates coming back, which is, you know, coming forward, which is so recognisable today as a kind of um, as a model for um, development in London in terms of the yeah, the exterior buildings and stuff like that. Then you've also got the sort of the, the planning powers that came forward in the post Second World War, um, and, and sort of the authorities of taking responsibility for, yeah. for, for thinking about that, about who was coming in and what the housing need was. Mm. What what I was wondering was what were other kind of cities doing at this sort of time? Like you know, I don't yeah, because um, it, it I don't think that there's anywhere else that was quite doing this level of municipal build. But maybe I'm catastrophically wrong about that. Well, I think nobody was. Yeah. Do I mean. Nobody was doing anything on the scale of the Beckenbury estate. Yes. And it is itself interesting because it uses the word estate, which I think for most people in Britain now conjures up a sort of 60s and 70s vision of council or social housing. Because actually the Beckenbury estate is a sort of model village. It's two mm. kinds of experiment at once. On the one hand, it's a big, it's a big social housing development. But on the other hand, it's built you know, like Hampstead Garden Suburb or somewhere mm. like that. It's built like housing for better off people. So it's it's doubly adventurous. And I mean, to take the point about architects, you know, we are beginning to see interest in design and architecture in social housing, um, which you know, continued until the 60s and 70s. Yeah, coming, coming back in. And the word estate is interesting as well, isn't it? Because 
you know, if you look at a Victorian estate, you know, that is, is a very different way of land management. And, and it's quite interesting how that has radically changed, perhaps, since 1919, because of the Addison Act. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Moving through uh, the years, obviously, we have, as we mentioned earlier, we've got mm. significant housing supply coming forward. And over this peri- period, we see quite a sustained growth in sort of um, council housing across London. We see population declines. We see people moving out to the um, sort of garden cities and garden suburbs, that sort of stuff. And, and very profound changes in the kind mm. of estates that were built as a result. I mean, a lot of the, the big estates in Southwark, for example, they were built to be less dense because of people, you know, kind of anticipating continued population decline and, mm. and such. But yes, we did. We, we saw um, increases in, in building until what, what event? What event might have changed that <laughs> slightly? Yeah. <laughs> I think obviously, yeah, we get to the 1980s and the right to buy. Yeah. And, um, Falls off a cliff. Yeah, significant impact on not just council ability to build, but obviously on the stock that they hold. So um, we see all these the loss of, of housing by councils. Um, which we still sort of feel the impacts of today, um, to some extent. But, it, but I think it's worth though saying that you know after the, because I mean the fe- period nineteen nineteen when this act was mm. passed through to nineteen thirty nine saw not only the creation of a massive amount of council housing as it was then called mm-hmm. social housing, but also the huge growth of London yes. out into the fields you know mm-hmm. so till it rushed all the way to Edgware and to um, south to Old Coulsdon as it were north and south. Um, before being stopped dead by the green belt. So you've got the the growth of market housing and this social housing going on in parallel right the way through to 1939 when London's population hit its, you know, 8.6 million highest until quite recently. So it was a remarkable period, both of public and private house building in London. And a very different planning system at that time. Very different. So very different scope for actually that expansion and that growth yeah. compared with where where we are now. Yeah, it is interesting how you see the population decline after the war as you get these sort of satellite towns building up, like building up. You feel think about like Milton Keynes and those sort of places where people were sort of moving out towards and. Well, I mean, but going back to a comment, I mean, you're right, obviously, you're absolutely right, but actually, inner London's population had started to fall way back. I mean, the, the city of London had certainly, 150,000 people lived in the city of London in the 19th century. Mm. So some of these very, very, very overcrowded, going back to the mm. conversation, places, their populations began to fall as more people could move out to, by railways, because the railways yes. have helped this, and public transport. Uh, so housing conditions do improve, but then you know after the Second World War, another massive uh, period of consensus politics across the parties at the national level and locally, most cases, coupled with idealism again born of you know pull, pulling away from the Second World War and idealism about the creation of a welfare state, mm-hmm. of which housing was a part. That's an important point, I think, isn't it? Because that consensus, sort of at a national level, around the importance of delivering council housing, is something that really did sustain until the nineteen eighties. I mean, if you look at the provisions of the Addison Act and the actual duty on councils to approximate the number of homes they had to deliver locally, sell timescales for how that would be done, and obviously the subsidy program. Although I think the subsidy program didn't quite stand um, quite as long as people would have hoped, but. Um, that consensus that council housing was an important asset, um, yeah, really did hold until the 1980s, and obviously when we see the sort of 
the, the introduction of buy and other restrictions on council development. Well, and the whole emphasis on housing associations taking on the development of affordable housing with private finance so that the state t took a step back and, you know, the grant rates reduced and there was this huge emphasis on, you know, bringing in that other source of finance and and having a more commercial view, um, which obviously has accelerated significantly in the last 10, 15 years, but it, but it has heralded back in 1985. Yeah, and also in the in the 70s, there were concerns about quality um, of, of council house building as well, like with Ronan Point and with other, um, you know, so I think that, that was probably part of the, the decline, it, you know, because it is... Um, if you look at the stats, um, like there's that very famous graph about house building with, um, and what London needed and what, <laughs> you know, the only time it's ever achieved that has been in the, um, uh, the interwar period or the period immediately after. And then it kind of, the social house building just falls off a cliff after a right to buy. And obviously right to buy is a significant part of that, but I don't think it is all. I think there was something about... Uh, conditions and the amount of money that was going into building because you know advocates of brutalist architecture for example will say they may not be right I don't know enough about it but um, that um, if they had built you know what they uh, designed in um, you know with better quality materials or with with more then it perhaps wouldn't be as um, disliked frankly as it, as it might be now and might have lasted a little bit longer actually because if you think of some of the the estates that have now been pulled down like in you know the um southwark for example um holly street in hackney famously yeah um and you know they they were a much much shorter period than than the beckon tree or the mm. um, other ones that were built at the turn of you know mm. turn of the century i mean i completely i mean i completely agree that yeah. thomas will net there's not that I was going to say there are books yeah. to be written, books have been written about <laughs> this. I mean, yes. quite a lot of them, I suspect. Yeah. And you're absolutely, I think Ronan Point yeah. became a sort of an absolutely, um, I mean, this was a, a 1969 when a gas explosion in a kitchen early one morning sort of knocked out, like concertina, down the side of a tower block in mm. Canning Town. And it just acted as a crisp, just crystallised a whole range of things mm -hmm. that people were by then worrying about. This radical, in fairness, you know, the programme on the day people moved into mm -hmm. some of the new concrete buildings mm -hmm. and former bomb sites to Parker Morris standards, you know, they were seen as palaces yes. at mm -hmm. that moment for the little time it, it was seen as being of having worked. But the question of when it, why it failed, you know. Could be the architecture, changing social mm. attitudes, thousand reasons, lack of capacity to maintain, mm. all of these things. Um, but the truth is, there's no doubt Ronan Point created the sort of sort of moment that crystallised a kind of turning against, in some ways, mm. council housing and councils as if they were personally, or only they were responsible for everything that had gone wrong. Yeah. Mm. Um. Um, and it, it is also about who was perhaps being given council housing as, as well, because even, um, you know, in the 70s, you had people who were on average incomes who were living in council housing and accessing those properties. And I mean, that's a slightly different story, but I think it's important to think about the community building and, um, you know, the kinds of people that were living in, um, in council housing being more, being more mixed than perhaps people might assume. Yeah, I agree with that, absolutely. It's also, I think, worth adding, and without being, this is a non-political, political remark, I think increasingly a number of Conservative politicians mm. came to see council housing, social housing, as being 
um, areas of Labour voters, and that just made it a bit more difficult. I mean, um, you know, in the in the early days of social housing, I don't think it was seen like this. Partly for the reasons the populations are very mixed, and there are all sorts of reasons that affected the way people voted. But I think by the time it became however indirectly associated with one party or another and you're voting, it just turned it into yet another bleak political issue on top of all the other ones we all have to live with all the time. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit more about right to buy? Or <laughs> yeah, I think it's... Segue to right I'm, quite, to buy. I'm quite interested on in the, in the, uh, in the borough impact. Like, so thinking of how that how this this still impacts on sort of Tower Hamlets. Yeah, I mean, there's again, there's been huge amounts written already about the right yeah. to buy and the impact. And of course, what sold wasn't evenly distributed. It wasn't mm. um, spread across all of the the different types of buildings. There were lots of houses sold before many flats were sold. And so, in terms of managing, um, you know, collecting the rents and then paying for the repairs and the improvements, um, it you know it didn't add up from the point of view of local authority finance. Um, that the whole scheme didn't add up, and then add to that the fact that there was no um, way of using that receipt uh, from that right to buy yeah. sale to buy to build another home or to you know um, replace what what was lost. So um, yeah, I mean that that that's all been very well documented and. Um, you know, we're still living with the consequences of that uh, in a huge way. Um, so for a lot of local authorities, particularly again in inner London, where they really do just manage um, blocks of flats these days, there were very few houses left that haven't been sold. Um, I was looking actually in Tower Hamlets that we, we this time of year we do our annual return to the government of um, our stock numbers and um, the right to buy sales for the last year. And... Um, I think we sold four houses last year in Tower Hamlets and, um, you know, 100 um, flats. And it's that kind of ratio that, we, that we've ended up with. Whereas when they were built in the first place, that wasn't the ratio in which council housing was built at all. There were lots of, lots of houses built and uh, so many of them were sold. Okay, so should we move on to sort of where we are today then in terms of councils and council development? Yeah, because um, there has been this huge hiatus in building from right to buy, and if we're, you know, really that happened in the eighties, which is thirty years ago now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and um, you know, you had a, a situation where also the grant rate um, in London, more much more recently, has come right down. But you also now have the kind of, the kind of surge back in thinking we really need large-scale council involvement in building again and ambition in in councils to to build and um, whether that is within the housing revenue account which obviously would be then subject to right to buy or outside of it as well um through various different different models um, and as, as mark said there is that point around um, having not built effectively, well, very limited amounts of building, you know, hundreds of units maximum, uh, like across the whole of London, across all the councils, um, to be able to scale that up to the kind of development needed, you need a huge amount of skills investment, a huge amount of financial investment, um, and also we don't have much land in London, so there's this huge kind of knotty problem, um, but people seem like they have the appetite to engage with it. Yeah, I mean, I think the land point is a very interesting one because when you look at the development that happened in the 60s and 70s, it was actually relatively low density compared mm. to a lot of other cities 
Um, and if you look at London now and the kind of densities that are uh, allowed in terms of the London plan, then um, there are a lot of areas of council housing where it's quite feasible to increase the density. Um, but that kind of estate regeneration project is very, very difficult to deliver because of all of the issues about moving out existing residents and um, and now we have ballots for those residents to be uh, asked whether they are in favour of those kinds of regeneration schemes. So that the case that has to be built to um, win them over is, is is significantly more than just saying, well, we're going to create lots of lovely new homes. There has to be a, a place shaping package that has all kinds of other aspects to it. Um, yeah, so I, I think um, the the kind of land issue is probably... Um, Councils would love to have more land than they've got, but it is one where it's about best use of the land that we've got, and it's about infill development and estate regeneration development, both of which have their challenges. Yeah. I, mean, I think the other thing that you know makes housing policy today actually in some ways better but more difficult is the fact that the idea of the large single estate uh, is no longer seen as anything like appropriate practice. So. You know, if you look at some of the uh, better-known London mega, well, they're not mega estates by Parisian standards, but they are by London standards. Outer Paris has much bigger, but you know, Roehampton or um, Broadwater Farm or Thamesmead. Thamesmead is a big GLC um, development now being redeveloped by Peabody and others. Um, the idea of building large monocultural areas like that is now completely out uh, because it had the effect, and it wasn't designed in this way, partly because the tenure of the people living in homes, as the point was made earlier, but, yeah. you know, has changed. But it just had the effect, however accidentally, of concentrating low-income households together. I think you're both more expert on me than me on this. So the idea now is to ensure that where social and um, you know affordable housing is provided, it's far more integrated in with um, uh, neighbourhoods where which are more mixed than the whole thing is. Uh, so sort of spread and that makes it much more difficult actually. Okay. Identifying small sites separate from each other often more difficult to service, mm. and yet undoubtedly avoids creating huge estates with all the difficulties that some of them have had. Yeah. I think yeah, the London plan is very much strongly encouraging um, that sort of yeah mixed use development now, isn't it? And obviously, it's become kind of best practice. Mm. The small site thing is also quite interesting because obviously a lot of councils have these sites, but the cost of developing them, actually getting them through the system, is not actually in terms of the planning process and all the sort of pre-development costs are actually not massively different to um, a big development. So it definitely is a challenge in terms of how you bring forward those sort of smaller development sites and make best use of land. It's also hard to imagine how a council could do a large single tenure development considering how reliant on cross-subsidy everything is. So, you know, I think that it's important to have mixed-use communities, um, like, you know, mixed and balanced communities, but also um, because of the grant rate being as it is, you can't build social housing um, without having also built a load of private housing. And that's increasingly a problem. I mean, some central London boroughs are having to reprofile 
their um, uh, their delivery programmes because the house prices that they were going to be able to subsidise delivery of social housing with are not necessarily mm. as achievable. So you sort of actually got them coming and going because they're not coming down enough that they're affordable by any means, but they're coming down enough to um, make it harder to cross-subsidise. Well, this takes you back to the housing company idea yes. where what some yeah. authorities are now doing is building on one site half the properties for... Um, council housing in the housing revenue account and the other half for private renting through a housing company that uh, the local authority then invests in both parts of the development but has different ways of financing it and different return on investment on each of those um, and you know one set of tenants have the right to buy and the others don't mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's quite an interesting new world that's that's coming out from from those schemes yeah I mean, it just shows it is interesting and it shows how innovative councils are <laughs> because they finally found a way of protecting at least some of the housing they built <laughs> build from right to buy, which has you know the consequences you were discussing earlier on. And you know, um, you know have a separate debate, there's something else to talk about the other day about right to buy uh, and the way it should have been, could have been handled. But there's no doubt this is a fascinating iteration of uh, council policy to build effectively things that are very close to being social housing but they're still in the private sector it's a very interesting new step yeah and you know that's going to have implications for a really long time as well yeah. particularly if councils are able to build at the sort of um, pipelines that they're projecting that's going to be a huge amount of stock that's coming in that's still going to be here in 30, 40 years. And um, now with the stock that we have that is uh, long-term HRA stock, you get um, quite often 30 to 50% leaseholders. And, and that really changes how you're able to manage uh, large blocks. And there's lots, sorts of, lots of financial implications to that and how difficult it might be for leaseholders to meet fees, for example, that um, are costs effectively of, of, of what you're managing. Um, and how hard it is to keep properties safe in a mixed in a, a development like that. Well, again, there are so many leaseholders um, from the right to buy days who've now sold on, yeah. and those uh, new owners aren't living there. They're renting those properties out, and uh, quite often to the council for use for homeless families. <laughs> and now, what's happening is councils are going in and buying, buying those back, properties, yeah. uh, and so paying a market value and having a, a homeless family housed next to a family paying a council rent and the homeless family are claiming the full local housing allowance from the benefit system on a private rent. Uh, again, it sounds a bit crazy, but somehow it works and authorities are doing this because they have to make it work. And of course, in that, in that situation, there's been, there have been multiple kind of impacts on the public purse on there. So obviously mm. you had the right to buy a receipt in the first place. You've now obviously got the, the cost of buying back the property and then there's the housing benefit cost as well, yeah. um, which, you know, could be like, you know, could be uh, higher if it's a private rent than it is, yeah. would have been if it's a social rent. So the, the cost to the, to the public purse is, is much more than it should be, if mm -hmm. you think about it from the point of view of how would you best provide mm. uh, social housing. But actually, when you look at it over the very long term, once the debt on those purchases has been paid off, mm. then actually councils will have the flexibility to do all kinds of things with those uh, homes that they've bought back from the people who bought them from them <laughs> and um, you know they they will be able to innovate in in lots of different ways whether it's key workers or yeah. other particular 
groups that they want to target housing towards. So I think, let's say in 20 to 30 years time, it will create a very different um, playing field. Because, I'm oh, sorry, you And well, the, the housing companies also give councils the flexibility to, like you say, look at different models. Mm. So it could be the case that they might decrease rents in market properties if that was exactly. viable um, or increase them if that was, you know, a possibility as well, which is more like the American built to rent mm. model mm. rather than social rents, which are very tightly regulated. Yeah, so I mean, it could all be based around income, yeah. which is another model of. Yeah. rent charging which uh, a lot of people favour yes absolutely yeah. I was just going to add you know what's interesting about this discussion and many interesting mm. things is that you know, by implication we're coming back again and again and again to um, the fact that London boroughs other councils have had to operate through all the years since you know 1919 and before yeah, but particularly since 1945 and the successive governments endlessly changing policy towards <laughs> housing mm. you know and I, it's you know like being the moon and having asteroids raining down on you really you know mm. they're endlessly policy changes got different subsidy regimes different buying and selling regimes different capital control regimes and uh, you know I, I it's amazing in some ways how much better housing conditions have got in london yeah. I mean, it is possible to imagine everything is getting worse but actually I know this is not true for every single person, but you know the, the improvement in housing conditions in the last fifty years, sixty years, or hundred years, for many, many, many people is very significant. And despite the chaotic nature it sometimes seems of national government policy and changes in it, overall, I do think housing conditions for most people, not even most people, have got better. Yeah, that's definitely true, and obviously. There's a significant ambition now for councils to be, be delivering more homes going forward. So we, rec we recently had the, uh, the GLA funding made available for councils and that was massively oversubscribed, wasn't it, in the end, mm. by councils by about 6,000 homes, I think, that the mayor wasn't able to fund. So there is that determination from councils to, again, deliver on, um, those, yeah, on, on the need for more homes in London. Yeah, and also they'll have to, to be honest, because... Mm. Um, it may it may well be the case that the kind of housing that people were planning to build in London is not uh, private housing is not as viable because people may have paid quite a lot for land that perhaps is worth even slightly less and that affects the viability hugely. But you still have huge need in in London and there's actually an argument that the historic under delivery against London plan targets is almost basically exclusively affordable delivery. Um, so the the need is is almost one hundred percent affordable yeah. <laughs> going going forward and yeah. for increase. And yeah. when you look at the projections going yeah. forward, that seems to be a trend that will continue as well. Isn't yeah, it? yeah that under provision of housing for lower and middle income households, with yeah. the market providing more towards the upper end at the moment. So. Well, yeah, I mean the ironic thing is the market only actually provides housing for something ridiculous like the top you know, mm. third of it, third of incomes if you look across all of all of London. So the other way of it is that the market isn't working for, you know, however a um, higher percentage. So you're talking about an intermediate um, going up to 80% of market value and perhaps people who are on incomes of up to £90,000, like, um, which is not an average salary in London, to say the least. The real challenge at the moment with the council house building that's going on is just that the cost of building mm. a new home in London, um, you know, 
good quality, good space standards, new home, um, the the rent that you get over, say, 30 years uh, at existing social rents in London just doesn't cover the cost of the build. So councils are borrowing money. Mm. They're using this grant from the mayor, which is very welcome. They're using right-to-buy receipts that they're now allowed to reinvest. And still, a lot of these schemes, if you were a private developer they wouldn't be viable they wouldn't mm. they wouldn't barely break even um, because rent inflation you know there's been obviously most recently a four-year rent reduction um, but even then you know the the rent restructuring that was supposed to bring council rents up closer to um, what housing associations are able to charge you know didn't didn't happen it wasn't followed through and uh, and now we've got the announcement about some rent increases over the next five years, mm. but we don't have certainty over 20, 30 year periods, when, which is what we're borrowing the money over to do these developments. So councils are still having to take a leap of faith and yes. put their money into this kind of house building at the expense of other things they could be doing with their surpluses on the housing revenue account, whether that's um, you know estate improvements, environmental improvements and so forth. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the, I think compared with 1919, none of us can remember, but even I can't remember <laughs> 1919, um, it strikes me that the, 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 the impact on the London property market and the, therefore the demand and pressure for council housing, social housing in London today is very much greater than in many, not all, but many other parts of the country mm. and different to what would have been the case even in the 50s and 60s. So the, the London property market, the South East, has detached itself so far from the rest of the UK that uh, actually a lot of the discussion of the housing crisis in the media is about London and the southern part of England, mm. when many parts of the Midlands and the North have, have their own issues and you know, need investment. I'm not getting saying that. But you know, it is easier to buy a home in many parts, mm. parts of the Midlands and the North on a median and average income. Or average income. And I think that is a, another of these big changes over time, that the, the London property market and the councils and the mayor who have to deal with it you know, is in a radically different place relative to the UK or England average than would have been the case in the past. So it's, and that means politically it's a bit more awkward because national government is having to deal with very different needs for uh, funding regimes and to justify them in different parts of the country. So people say, why does London get all this money? And there's a good reason for that, because housing's more expensive to, so, you know, to build social housing, affordable housing. But trying to explain that when you're a cabinet minister, you know, is always going to be a bit difficult. And that's because the London market is so different to the rest of the country. And also London needs many, many more homes. And actually many parts of the country probably need a net reduction and an increase in quality. But I'm also also struck by, also, also, also always struck by the fact that in London, social rents are probably at around 20%. Of, of market whereas if you go to parts of even still parts of Manchester and certainly parts of uh, other places in the north where they're commensurate with market mm. value in the PRS certainly or elements of the PRS and um, that's um, a really marked change and you do get this huge therefore in London people in the middle who will never qualify for social housing in a million years um, but also cannot access even private rented products and that's actually part of the reason that we have uh, on an average 
55,000 homeless families in London um, on any given night, about half of whom are in work, over half. Yeah. And indeed, you know, it has the, uh, further, I mean, le less serious yeah. at one level, yeah. but interesting another way, knock-on consequence. Resolution Foundation produced some data recently, probably last year now, but interesting, you know, showing how for the median household in, in terms of income in London, they would own little or no, have, have, sorry, have little or no built-up housing capital. Mm. Whereas in the rest of the country, it's, it, you can, on yeah. a median income. Mm. So it's another element in this story. Um, and that means in some ways it distorts the London housing market, now distorts the way the rest of the country understands London. Certainly mm. for median, people on median incomes it does. Yeah. Well, there was one, one area that I, I did want to touch on because I don't think we could do a podcast on council housing without talking about the impact of fire safety and the, um, the, the sort of tragic events at Grenfell and what, that, what differences that has made to how councils think about, think about their homes and think about managing their homes. Well, obviously there's a, an immediate huge increase in the spend capital uh, on improving and correcting all of the fire safety issues that, you know, being open about it for many years have been not the top priority, you know, and um, it's suddenly become a very big issue with residents, with councillors, with staff in, in council housing departments. So there's been a big increase in expenditure. You can see that across London. Um, but then there's also the issue about the kind of new development programmes and thinking about how to address um, all of those issues in the most robust way when you're doing, when you're specifying and building new homes. And obviously the Hackett Review recommendations that have um, now begun to edge themselves forwards in terms <laughs> of legislation, um, you know, that, that's going to change very fundamentally how we go about developing new homes and again local authorities will want to be leading the way in terms of implementing those in the best possible way not trying to cut any corners mm -hmm. in the way that we believe the local the uh, private sector has been uh, over the last few years mm -hmm. and um, so it yeah it's fundamentally an issue for building safe homes for people as well as decent homes for people it's, it's a fundamental part of it me there's no doubt it will affect public policy, not only in London, but in London for the foreseeable future. And I would liken it in its way to the King's Crossfire on the Underground mm. in 1987, yeah. which changed the way London Underground approached safety and the use of materials from that more, every from there to today at significant cost, but you know, rightly so. And actually some of the dire childcare failures that have affected mm. the way councils think about the way children are looked after and information moves around between departments and other public services and other councils. That too has had a long-term cost to um, children's services department. And Grenfell, I think, will have the same impact that it was, a, in a sense, it will be, the housing safety will be better, but the cost structure will for all time be higher. And that's mm -hmm. the, that's the, and therefore, there is a further question, which is either there's going to be less money for social and affordable housing in future or more money will have to be found from somewhere else yeah absolutely because 
one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is about the decent home standard and what that has meant, because traditionally that's focused on quality inside the home and thinking more about taking that outside the flat front door and thinking about common parts and cladding and, and other areas. And that is absolutely part of decency or should be part of decency. And therefore, can we have loads of money for it? That's sort of, I think, mm. where I'm coming to on, <laughs> on that, because um, the cladding is, is sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of the costs. There's, um, you know, just an awful lot of things that councils are looking at more closely and just, you know, being really, really careful about increasingly. Yeah. And there's also this wider thing about tenant engagement, isn't there, and how we yeah. actually empower tenants mm. um, in, in sort of creating better communities, aren't they? Yeah, and I mean, I think again with with the the whole new build program that local authorities are wanting to involve residents right from the beginning of conceiving of mm. their programs and and in the whole procurement and delivery of those programs, and we have the whole self build movement that's um, coming back into into pr prominence really with, um, again, you talked about the small sites earlier, and for example, in Tower Hamlets, there are lots of very small sites which are just not, not going to be delivered through the local authority programme because of scale, but are perfect for small groups of residents, small community-led groups to come forward and deliver homes. So that's something we're very much supporting. So in terms of Tower Hamlets delivery, obviously, one of the most um, important things we had recently was around the housing revenue accounts which last year we had the, when we built the caps on borrowing. Mm. For a borough like Tower Hamlets, what impact does that have on your ability to deliver? So um, when I started working in Tower Hamlets three years ago, um, there was a definite view that within probably three or four years of my, my starting, the borrowing cap would be reached and the council would have to stop building new council housing and it could only do that through arms length companies or, or other innovative approaches. Um, and there's still good reasons to do those other things as we touched on earlier, but now that that um, debt cap's been lifted, because of having a stock of um, you know, over, over 12,000 properties to draw rents in from and, and, and reinvest money from, um, we've now remodelled a 30-year business plan which shows us able to borrow substantially more money you know, possibly half a billion pounds mm. to invest. Uh, now, that wouldn't all go into a, a new build programme necessarily, but the, it just demonstrates the scale of difference that's achieved by withdrawing what was just a very arbitrary cap. It wasn't, it wasn't based on the, uh, the income base. It was, it, I can't explain what it was based <laughs> on, but it, it was very arbitrary. And boroughs are in very different positions in terms of the, the borrowing cap, so some of them were right up against it. Um, and so this creates a huge amount of lift. And also with Tower Hamlets, they had a programme that you can mm. then ex ex expand. And, and, and so uh, there are other boroughs where it, it makes perhaps less difference than you think, particularly where a large percentage of their HRA already goes on debt repayment. Because some HRAs in um, in London have about twenty percent of their payments are servicing historic debt, some of which goes back to the war. And I mean, I could do a whole podcast on housing <laughs> debt personally, mm. but you know, I would be the only one listening to it, so <laughs> perhaps wouldn't oh, be that valuable. I, I, I'd enjoy it. I'd enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, some some borrowers yeah. borrowed at the wrong time, at yeah. the wrong rate, and yeah. been paying the price. Um, but but the point is that across the whole of London, um, it it won't meet the need. 
So, you know, it makes a difference and it starts to get the ambition really going and there are some boroughs that can really maximise on it, but others aren't able to. So even with the HRA cap, you still need right to buy receipts. You need, um, or, you know, kind of the flexibility to use those um, much more um, sensibly because there's this ar- a series of arbitrary rules that means that you effectively often can't use them. But also perhaps we could look at some of the very historic debt that was allocated by government with the um, the rent restructuring and, and the position that that's put some councils in. Um, and um, yeah, we, we, we do need more money fundamentally in social households. Mm. I don't think it's going to... It's what I was saying earlier yeah. about the viability against yeah. the build costs. And, yeah. You know, debt is a good thing generally, yeah. but too much debt is a very bad thing. <laughs> and it doesn't work. And so you try modelling schemes with, you know, 80, 90, 100% debt finance, and they never pay for themselves. Yeah. I suppose this, that, that's definitely true. But it is interesting, we are in a particular moment now, you know, 100 years out mm. from the Addison Act, where on the one hand, I think the mood at the national level and at the local level, is more relaxed about council, social housing that's been for a very long time. I think that's and central government has relaxed restraints of the kind we've heard to its credit, uh, that has made life you know easier for councils to plan ahead. The other thing is we are at a period of historically low interest rates, yeah. going to the discussion we've just had. And it's hard to think apart from the challenge of finding the sites and you know and everything else. Um, you know, it is actually quite a, an optimistic moment for house, you know, social housing, council housing, um, as a concept. Partly because some of the um, the misery of the you know the the thirty or forty year ago history we all mentioned, you know, um, Ronan Point earlier, and the very politicised debates about council housing in the 70s and 80s. We've moved way on from that now. And you know, I think London Borough's national government, you know, mayor, broadly, I wouldn't say they've got the same policy, but more than for a long, long time, there's a sort of broad consensus mm. of attitude. And the challenges are not so much po- political or financial. Well, you know, there's always financial challenges and making deals work. It's a matter of sites and planning and assembling spaces big enough to do developments. And, you know, against the backdrop of, you know, population figures out the other day, London's population grew by another 83,000 in 2018, an uptick in population increase in 2018. So that alone is a challenge. Yeah, I mean, and it is a fact, really, that London won't deliver the number of homes needed without this massive increase in council Absolutely. housing, isn't it, really? No. Well, ha- council housing, private housing, Everybody. every form of housing, it all got, it's got to be kind of, everything's got to increase. And there is overcrowding going on again, I mean, not, not as it was perhaps in 1919, mm. but um, there are a lot of people who are particularly, um, who immigrate from um, parts of the EU and, and, um, and broader, mm. Um, who are living in extremely overcrowded conditions in predominantly in the private rented sector. Um, so you don't necessarily get a sense of um, the, the population and the unit numbers until you, you sort of think about that. So the only thing I would have, I suppose, I, it would have been, um, it's a slightly broader point, though, the, the way in which outer London's become more like inner London in the last 30 or 40 years, mm. but I think it's... Is a slightly separate point, so I think we've done that. I think we covered everything. I mean, that goes to yeah. the London plan kind yeah. of intensification policy yeah. for all of those mm. centres in the in the outer ring of you know 
Phenomenal, remarkable phenomenon. Yeah. You go to anywhere in outer London, or not many centres in outer London, and they're all sprouting towers yeah. and yeah. much more dense development. Yeah. Um, but also the populations of outer London boroughs are more like mm. inner London boroughs yeah, would have been yeah. 30 or 40 or 50 years mm. ago. Mm. They're more diverse ethnically, much wider spread of rich and poor. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, ta- Barking and Dagenham will be, you know, more overseas born than Lambeth soon. Mm. I think it is already, actually, mm. that kind of thing. Remarkable changes mm. um, that would have been, but they just sort of. But I think we that's for in the sense for another podcast. I think there is an interesting thing about how people feel about London as well, though, because mm. obviously these areas that were once seen as kind of outer London, sort of like Manor House or like Finsbury Park, that kind of way, sort of not central London, but they feel much closer to the centre now. I think they do, and I think immigration has profoundly mm. affected mm. that because immigrants, whether they're second or third generation, who've moved from you know, places like Newham to, say, Redbridge, or just move from the rest of the world in one step to Enfield, both happen. Um, you know, there's lots of, nothing to do with this other research, that suggests that such people are much more likely to identify as British rather than English, mm-hmm. and they identify strongly as Londoners. So immigration has affected the way um, people think about the city, and I think more people in outer London, certainly that would have been true in 1965, think of themselves as in London. Mm-hmm. Lots of people in outer London would have yeah. considered themselves in London in, even in the 70s and 80s, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's, again, a slightly wider topic. But it, it certainly affects housing, but it's not a direct mm-hmm. housing thing. Yeah. Well, I think the um, yeah, densification of outer London in particular is going to be a significant political and social challenge, I think, isn't it? About how you change communities and the need for densification mm. in areas that have historically rejected that kind of development quite strongly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you can get away with it in, you know, Ilford High Street, mm. yeah, the high road, uh, or at Wembley on what was broadly an empty space mm. uh, around Wembley Park. Mm. But there's no doubt when you get to, you know, what all policymakers think is a good thing, i.e. intensification around, let's say, West Drayton Station, people locally don't see it as what transport and housing planners see it as, which is a sensible public policy. Mm. They don't yeah. respect, they don't, no, that's unfair, they just see it as an imposition, which at some level, in fairness to them, it is. Mm. Mm. makes perfect sense in broader policy, but it doesn't make sense to the people who have for all time lived there mm. and saw it as a low-density place with housing that looked like this. Yeah. And that's going to play out over the next 10, 15 years, because what, what you're seeing now, like Ilford Town Centre, as you say, just the beginning mm-hmm. of quite a long range uh, kind of trend and phenomenon. Mm. Yeah. In fact, Ilford away to Gans Hill. You know, mm-hmm. So you can see mm-hmm. Stratford, Stratford, Stratford High Road, High Street, mm-hmm. at least High Street, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like a canyon, mm-hmm. a canyon. It's unthinkable 30, 40 years ago. Well, the only other thing actually that is, is on my mind about council house building is whether we're building for the climate that we're going to have in 20 years. But again, that's another podcast, really. But I actually think councils are better at that than some uh, large-scale private developers that are putting so many units around cores that you can't have any airflow um, Mm. and and, and such. But that is a very big other topic, Mm. really. It's interesting because my (laughs) colleagues... I mean, I was involved, but it was mostly my colleagues did some work on 
density, you may actually yeah. have heard about this, yeah. uh, and about, which they looked at, um, new very dense developments, and some including, the, not actually they didn't do the boundary estate, but they did do both Lillington Gardens and the Millbank estate, which mm. you know, one the 70s, one the, eight, the 1900s, mm-hmm. dense in their time. First thing, of course, most people who live in very densely populated areas don't think of them as being very densely populated. They're just where they live. Yeah. But the other thing was that heat was the thing. Yeah. Heat and lack of space, place to put yeah. stuff. Yeah. That yeah. was the main... They quite liked, they quite liked yeah. living in the places. So it wasn't as if they didn't like it, but yeah. the things they observed that were not so good were you know, absolutely predictable. Too hot, particularly new blocks. Mm. Nowhere to put anything, not enough yeah. storage space. And a bit about noise, but mm. noise wasn't the top, actually. But certainly mm. nobody complained about them living in a... They didn't say, it's too dense. Mm. And when they're over a... You know, there's a, a, one of the blocks was in Woolwich, I think, over a huge Tesco. Loved it. I know it well. <laughs> Loved it. Didn't yeah. go down to the Tesco. <laughs> it's really good. They like that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That brings us to the end of another London Council's Let's Talk About podcast. If you'd like to learn more about housing and planning at London Councils, please visit londoncouncils.gov.uk. I've been Alex Sewell. Thanks again to our guests, Mark Bajant, Professor Tony Travers, and Eloise Shepherd. And thank you for listening.